0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of The VinCast. My name is James Gessberg, also known as The Intrepid Wino. And just the other day, I got back from a couple of days in Sydney, and I was up there in a uh, an official capacity for my company, Lardio, uh representing at the Sydney Italian Wine Festival, uh, which is the inaugural event, and it was held at the Sydney Town Hall. And as you probably would could be able to guess, it, the event is designed to showcase... Uh, the fantastic italian wine being brought in by a number of different importers here in australia and um, they also had along um, some chefs from fantastic local uh, italian restaurants uh, who were cooking up some food doing some cooking classes uh, indeed they ran some uh, some wine master classes as well it was just really fantastic and uh, each the, the whole thing was separated by regions so uh, I was in there with um, some of our Friulian wines, which was really fun. It was also a fantastic opportunity to um, interact with Sydney consumers who um, are a little bit different to to the Melbourne wine consumers. Um, certainly, you know, a lot in in people who work in the wine trade as well. Um, it, one thing that surprised me was the amount of people who came up uh, actually asking for orange wine. Uh, for those of you who don't know who what, what orange wine is. Um, it's wine made from white grapes but uh in the method they make red wine so it actually has skin contact and so the color and um, and also the contact with oxygen actually um, gives the wine a a sort of an orange color uh, which is a little bit different and um, certainly the consumers in melbourne uh, are a little bit less experienced with these kind of wines so that was fantastic um speaking of italian wines the um the australian alternative varieties wine show just wrapped up where they uh profiling wines made from alternative varieties including italian spanish portuguese uh, a lot of different varieties here in australia and um at the moment they're actually um wrapping up the national wine show which is in Canberra, which pretty much brings to a close the the wine show period here in australia um and um as i mentioned on a previous episode um the uh, the melbourne wine awards formerly known as the royal melbourne wine show um was recently held and uh, which kind of relates to um, my guest for today. So my guest for today's episode is Tom Carson, Uh, Tom is the winemaker at Yabby Lake in the Mornington Peninsula and Heathcote Estate in uh, Heathcote Uh, and Tom has actually um, just won a very prestigious uh, accolade the jimmy watson trophy which i think i mentioned on a previous episode um, jimmy watson uh, jimmy watson uh, had a wine bar in carlton uh, one of the first wine bars in melbourne and uh... the um... the, the trophy which um, was started at the royal melbourne wine show is for a one-year-old red wine and i think up until only recently um, the wine was from barrel but they uh, have since allowed wines that have already been bottled to be eligible for that prize um, the Melbourne Wine Awards uh, awarded um one of Tom's wines and it was uh, the first time a Pinot Noir has won I think since the 1950s which is a pretty amazing achievement obviously Australia pretty well known for um Shiraz in particular and, and a number of other uh, Bordeaux varieties and uh, and it caused a bit of a stir so I thought um it would be really interesting to invite Tom and he's very graciously offered some of his time um to to chat so thank you for joining us Tom. No problem. So, Tom, one thing I like to ask people is, what was it? Was was there a particular wine? Was there uh, an experience that involved wine? What actually made you discover wine? Well, it's probably a long story,
1: but uh, back, uh, you know, early on, my father had a, a cellar. So, and uh, not, a, not a big cellar, but a small cellar with some dusty old bottles there. And I yeah. do, do remember... The ceremony that went with um, opening of those bottles and the enjoyment and the talk and and uh, the reverence that was given to the wines <laughs> that were that were pulled out, and so that always sort of piqued my interest very early on. But uh, it, it wasn't probably till a little bit later that uh, I discovered that I, I suppose the potential for a career in winemaking. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it wasn't something that. When I was uh, going through school, I thought that it was possible. I didn't give it any thought at all, actually. Um,
0: Where are you from originally?
1: I'm uh, from Melbourne. So I grew up out in sort of out of East uh, Eltham Research Way. Okay. And... Uh, so almost rural. Yeah, like semi-rural. Back yeah. then it was, you know, we, we were on an acre block and there was, you know, just uh, cow paddocks behind us. That okay. We had great fun playing sure. around in. and. Um, and it's you know quite built up now, obviously. Yeah, uh, but that was uh, urban that, w- that was sort of you know the uh, late 70s, and um, you know, it was uh, where all the hippies were living out then, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> no, <that's laughs> out to Kangaroo Ground and even further Hurstbridge and Whittlesea and, and that
0: area. So, I'm um, sure you could easily find plenty of them, like in Warrandyke, definitely.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it had a nice, it had a real bush, rustic sort of feel to the area, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, it was a, a nice place to, to grow up. Um, so yeah, I finished. Uh, school finished HSC and uh, went off to do a, a food science and technology course at RMIT. Okay. Which, um, Were there many options in terms of studying? Well, a- a- I really didn't know what I wanted to do, so I'd got to the year the end of year 12 and looked at my score and you know it was pretty average and i would got, <laughs> got through and thought well you know i can you know i was always keen to do further study i just didn't know what to do that sure i was sort of interested in that it seemed at the time but um after about 12 months of that i it didn't really didn't really um grab me yeah. too much and yeah. uh, i thought look i'll take a year off and i worked in a um in a bar for a year okay at at, 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 at yeah mount dandenong hotel right okay uh, and they had a little wine shop at the front, sure. and um, yeah, a little bottle shop really, not a wine shop, but mm. um, they had some decent wines in there, lots of local wines. Yep. And and, and in those days, they're all run independently. Yeah, of you course. know, they weren't uh, branded corporate sort of hotels that you know had
0: supply. Uh, and, and, and generally it was sort of all associated with hotels and, and pubs as opposed to sort of standalone shops? Yeah. So, you know, I, the guy who was
1: doing the wine buying sort of left and I was sort of thrown to, to help take over that <laughs> and just basically keep the, the shelves stocked. So I started learning a little bit about, you know, wines and um, reading up a little bit more and uh, that certainly got my interest
0: going. Did um, you find that you had sort of, you found um, extrasensory kind of you could pick up certain... Well, I started drinking I more think. wine, that was yeah, for okay. sure. Yeah, that's going to help. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I liked the taste of it and I liked uh, I liked it. So um, that, that sort of got me interested and I was trying various things out of the shop and, you mm-hmm. know, just reading back labels and reading books and trying to understand, you know, this, uh, this big wine world. So, sure. Uh, and then... Uh, Uh, My cousin actually, um, one of his mates was working in a vineyard in the Yarra and he said, well, why don't you go and work out in the vineyard if you like this wine stuff? And I thought, well, that's, you know, that's fantastic. So I worked, I worked a year at um, Domaine Chandon when they were planting the vineyard. So before anything was done there, uh, there was still the old homestead on the property and we'd have our smoker (laughs) and the old cow, the the milking shed and we're out planting vines and, you know, driving tractors around and, you know, I learned a lot that year. So you would have been there with Tony and Bernie? Yeah, or... Tony, yeah, well, it was well before Bernie. Um, there was actually a guy called Michael Murta who was the vineyard manager back then. Mm-hmm. He actually, it was it was uh, about 12 months in after the property had been purchased that I started there. So it was right back. We were planting the first blocks on, yeah. that, on that whole property. Yeah. So Tony was involved. James Halliday was actually doing some consulting and sure. uh, helping out. And they didn't actually have a vineyard manager at that stage. So they... Um,
0: so James had already established Coldstream
1: Hills. He by was that point. establishing it. Yeah. Okay. So he started in '83. This was um, this was 80- 1987. Seven. Okay. Yeah. And into 1988. Uh-huh. So it was when they I think they bought the property in '86. '86. Yeah. Yeah. And that started planting '87. So we were sort of you know '87 '88 planting uh, planting the first vines and um, yeah I just met you know wine people really I suppose um, wow and learnt about you know study you could study to be a winemaker so it you know it sort of flowed from that um just having that kind of opened up a whole yeah it opened up and it yeah. just sort of this moment like you can actually study to be a winemaker oh, i really get, you know that
0: thought kinda of yeah, thing. yeah sort of went through my head really you can do that it, it just didn't well, particularly you know, with tony because um correct me if i'm wrong but with brian crozer they had pretty much set up the wine school with charleston in Wagga yeah, Wagga. yeah they had
1: i don't think i'm not sure they had then or they were working on it but, right um yeah it was just a moment i thought well that's great i'm gonna go and do that you mm-hmm. know it just seemed to me that winemakers were old people that got you know handed the, the reins of the estate and like was, wine drinkers i guess yeah next day and uh so that that was sort of a moment where i thought well that's great i know what i want to do now mm-hmm. um and you know went off to roseworthy in 89 uh, to 91
0: yeah. Okay. How, and had Rouseworthy? Obviously, how long have they been teaching uh, winemaking and viticulture? Uh, winemaking, I think, it goes back uh, nearly a hundred years. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah,
1: it's got. It had. It doesn't anymore because they don't do it there. They do no. it at the University of Adelaide. But it has quite a long history. I think at least back to the 30s. Yeah. Right.
0: Okay. And so, where? I mean, I've spoken to a couple of winemakers who've um, talked about their experiences studying um when you went to roseworthy so who were some of the other people you were studying with um sort of what backgrounds did they tend to tend yeah, it was quite have? a
1: diverse year i mean i was a couple of years out of uh, finishing school there was some guys you know some local barossa guys that were you know straight from year 12 into the course because that's what they wanted to do they come sure. from wine families or so guys like scott heidrick who's a winemaker of jeff merrill yeah Um, Sam Kurtz, who's chief winemaker at Orlando, they were in my year. They were local guys that went through, um, you know, basically straight from school into the course. Yeah. Then you've got other guys like, you know, Matt Harrop was in my year. Okay. uh, From Shadowfax. So, you know, uh, he was, uh, you know, roughly my age as well, a couple of years out um and then we had some older mature age guys you know that were um studying as well so yeah it was a, it was a it was it's quite a unique group of people to be put out into an agricultural college in gaula yeah of course <laughs>
0: but, i mean even then there was still sort of um that that um the hobby farm kind of people who might have had other careers as doctors lawyers even teachers that kind of thing establishing like planting vineyards um and and, and maybe uh, they'd sort of wanted yeah, well to they, come back and study a bit of a, that sort of the science or all the sort of the the techniques of winemaking were there. sort of anyone like that in there the um course? you know there was some people
1: that it was they were just starting the viticultural course as well so there was uh there was three or four people who were interested in um streaming into viticulture you could do a, a degree in an in ology or viticulture okay so it was sort of all together for the first 18 months and then they it's went were foundation and, uh, you know, and then sort of streamed into viticulture so there was yeah, four or five people who uh, were interested in that and there was generally i mean the industry back then was dominated by you know the big the big players yeah um and the small wineries you know that were were sort of you know were, were much much less than the numbers were today so there was there was a few people um you know from smaller places but a lot of um you know sort of south south australian heartland type mm-hmm. um people who were you know coming through the sort of graduate programs in the big companies where you'd come in you'd get a yeah, okay. degree and then you'd sort of you know you'd climb the climb the ladder
0: sure. uh, through the ranks so um what what year and and where was the sort of your first official vintage as a winemaker was it during your studies or was it post yeah last uh, final year
1: 1991 of the course
0: was uh part
1: of the course was to go and do a vintage so i worked at tim Knapstein's in Clare valley oh wow okay yeah, and it was... Uh, How did you find the Clare Valley? Oh, I love the Clare. Yeah. yeah, it's a beautiful area. Yeah. Um, and it was... Tim had also established his vineyards at Lenswood.
0: Right, okay. Uh,
1: so it was the, the first... Was in the Adelaide Hills. Yeah, in the Adelaide Hills. So it was the first... Uh, he'd made some wine in 1990, and then 91 was the first official release from the Lenswood vineyard. So, mm-hmm. you know, dealing with Pinot, Adelaide Hills, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay... Uh, back then was really interesting. Yeah, it
0: was great. But- so it's, I could imagine some of those uh, regions around Adelaide. Um, in since then, in the last twenty years, they've really changed uh, quite dramatically. I'm sure there've mm. been would have been some wineries that were around then that maybe aren't around anymore. Whether they've been swallowed up by bigger players and a lot more sort of small producers. Um, do you get back over to? To, yeah, to I go back much. quite a bit. I've been chairing the McLaren Vale Wine Show for the last three years, so
1: I've been going back each year there and mm-hmm. uh, various other trips. But yeah, the Adelaide Hills back then was you know there wasn't much happening up there. I mean Brian Crozer had established some vines at Piccadilly, and mm. um, sure and Smith started just you know a couple of years before uh, in '89. So it was uh, it was sort of you know pioneering territory. I
0: think sure. Mm um pretty different to the yarra valley i guess you know that's got a lot more history going back to going back to the 19th century yeah that's
1: right and the yarra um at that stage in the late 80s you know all the talk was um you know around coldstream hills and domain chandon and the, and the the big sort of new wave of investment that was coming into the valley so
0: and de Bortoli was around about that time as well yeah
1: de Bortoli's uh, purchased millers in 80 80- I think, mm, yeah. I think it was about the same time as yeah, 85. So yeah, there was three big uh, sort of new projects going on um, after the, the the original pioneers had, had
0: uh, re-established in sure. the late 60s. And um uh, and and so post graduation, um, what was oh. sort of your first official job? in the wine industry first
1: full-time job was uh, at Coldstream Hills in fact but okay. uh I did I went back in 92 and did another vintage at uh, Napstein's, mm-hmm. and sort of worked six months there sort of the first six months of the year and then I went to Burgundy for a vintage wow in 92 and uh came back from that um and started
0: working at Coldstream Hills and so you, you came back to the Yarra Valley and particularly with your sort of experience working vintage in, in Burgundy you kind of Came back and I'm assuming, you know, had a lot of interest in particularly Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Mm. Uh, sort of, what, what, what kind of um, opportunities did working at Costrum Hills back then kind of present for you to sort of experiment and explore and, and look at different parts of the Yarra Valley?
1: Yeah, well, they, uh, well there's a number of areas um, that became sort of learning learning spots for me at Coldstream Hills. I mean, James, um, and Suzanne would always, you know, you, would you back in those days, was very long days uh, during vintage. Yeah. Uh, you know, sort of 7.30 starts and, and not getting out of there till midnight. Wow. Um, but thankfully James and Suzanne would throw on a, a lavish dinner most nights and, sure. uh, you know, Suzanne would cook up a storm and James would, uh, Raid the cellar yeah. and uh, bring out some amazing bottles. And, He's pretty um, famous for that, I think. Yeah, and and it was it was not uh, it was educational every of time. Everything was uh, blind. You never knew what. Okay. Uh, you were drinking, so there was you know three or four brackets per night, and um, you had to be on your game. It wasn't it wasn't a drinking session. It was a training session, and uh, there'd be four whites put in front of you, and it, it could be a game like you know. Uh, you know, they're all from one region, and name the vintage, and tell me what kind of like options. It's like options, so you get led with questions, or it's um, figure out the puzzle. You know, there's four wines here. There's one wine that's the odd man out. Why right. is it? Why okay. is it out? And what's what do the other three wines have in common? So, sounds a bit like sitting the master master of wine exams. <laughs> yeah, well, it. It was serious, but it was fun as well. So sure. it wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't sort of keeping score and keeping tally, but um, and James and he James City. had, you know, James's background with Len and all those guys in the Hunter that was, you know, that, that sort of, in, you know, drinking and enjoying great wine, but really trying to learn to understand it and appreciate it as best you can, So, but have a bit of fun doing it.
0: Had he started the Australian Wine campaign at that point? Uh, well, uh, well, yes. Um, Were you ever around when, when sort of... People were sending uh, sending in samples. Yeah, there's all these wines yeah. to be tasted. He, okay. He'd go through brackets of wines. So I
1: think I think that one of the funnest days was um, tasting for the you know, Australian Top 100 when it came to selecting you know the vintage champagnes and oh yeah. Fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was always good at the end of the day when you had you know 50 vintage champagnes lined up and they'd all just been tasted and it's like well you know go for a glass a
0: look. What were those early vintages like? Um, I guess in comparison to sort of more recent vintages um have you you seen a a huge difference in terms of climatically and yeah well
1: vintage was later back then uh we certainly found coming off the the drought from 97 onwards really um melbourne yarra valley mornington you know 13 years of consecutive lower than average rainfall Mm -hmm. uh From that, we've seen the vintage move forward on the calendar. So we used to, in the Yarra Valley, you know, not really get much going until sort of mid to late March. Uh, And now, you know, mid-February is a pretty standard starting time. So it's a sort of jump forward four, sometimes six weeks uh, in terms of when uh, we're harvesting grapes. So that has changed, um, you know, the period of the year when the grapes are doing their final ripening. Mm. Uh, So we've shifted from... You know beginning of autumn to end of summer yeah. so there's often warmer weather so that that is causing more issues in wineries because of what we call sort of the compression of the ripening period because sure. uh, we've got a, a shorter time to get get the fruit in the winery mm-hmm. get it processed and fermented and into barrel and everything so and in hot weather you know grapes can ripen quicker so if you get a bit of a hot spell uh, things move very very quickly whereas if you're in later march and you've got you're not going to get a 38 39 degree day in late march but you can get that in mid-february in in melbourne yeah
0: certainly i was down in the mornington um just after i got back from overseas uh which was i think in late february or even early march and there was a bit of a heat spike and i think sort of that was causing a bit of concern for people because it had been fairly mild over the summer um, from what i was hearing so Mm. you know i can kind of put everyone on um on uh alarm yeah. systems a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think 93 was, a, you know, quite a cool year. There was a lot of rain. It was quite late. You know, we didn't really get picking until April Yeah, at Coldstream wow. uh, with the first fruit in the winery, and we were going through, well, to, you know, to the end of May, whereas, you know, that wouldn't happen today. So that's one of the bigger changes we've seen with, you know, drought slash global
0: warming, climate change, whatever you want to call it. I remember when I started at Chandon, um, the winemakers would always be really ecstatic if, um, if they could get vintage well and truly done with by Easter. It's like, yes, we can actually have the Easter long weekend. Mm. And now it's, well, at that point, it was pretty much guaranteed that you'd be finished by, uh, yeah. by Easter. I, mean, I guess, depending on when it fell on the calendar. Mm. Um, how long did you spend at Coulstrom Hills? I say for two, two and a half years. Yeah. Um, and were you still kind of going over to Europe working vintages? Yeah, I
1: worked '93 um, in Burgundy. So I did '92, '93, and then I went to work for a very small place uh,
0: called Yarra Edge. Yes. Which, which, uh, which was, is where Matt still and worked, I believe.
1: No, he worked at Yarra Ridge. Yarra, Yarra Ridge. Yarra Edge was a twelve hec- uh, twelve acre vineyard
0: that's on uh that, it's on edwards back road. road
1: yeah off coldstream hills road there was a, a family there the bingaman family that had uh, set it up and uh, established a little label
0: and so i did all i think there's a there was a yarra edge wine like a, an older vintage at that um trophy winner's lunch
1: it could have been i think yeah. so I, i've yeah. never seen that yeah so that was it they made a cabernet blend and uh when i was there we planted some chardonnay pinot as well and got okay. that going so uh, yeah, I worked there for a couple of uh, two years, um, but I, it was I was the only employee, so I did all the vineyard work, uh, pruning, spraying, you know, all the work in the in the vineyard, and then all the wine making. So it was a
0: sort of really drawing on all of your studies to sort of yeah, uh, it was a it was very from... steep
1: learning curve. But it, you know that experience in the vineyards sort of invaluable, really mm-hmm. understanding what's happening out there. So you know that was a that was a very busy couple of years, and then uh, you know. Um, Went to Yering Station when they started to establish, um, you know, with the new owners, the
0: Rathbones. Right, okay. So that was 96. So Yering Station, um, you said said re-established with the Rathbones. Um, Yering Station was actually, I think, was the first winery? Uh, it was
1: the-, the first vines planted in Victoria. Right, yeah, okay. In 1838, yeah. it was part of sort of three uh, wineries back in the late eighteen hundreds, so it was Yeringberg, uh, St Hubert's, St. Huberts yeah. and Yering. Uh, they were the three main uh, vineyards back then. And then, I mean, Yeringberg's last vintage, I think we're not sure. There's no records from the old Yering days. Uh, mm-hmm. It's all sort of anecdotal uh, what we know about it, but yeah, we th- believe to have stopped <clears throat> sometime around nineteen hundred. Uh, St Hubert's about the same time, and uh, Yeringberg's last vintage was 1921.
0: Wow! Okay,
1: so and then, then hung on a little bit longer then. yeah, and they the you know the next sort of re reestablishment of the valley was the late 60s with um, yeah you know, Beta Caritas and then John Middleton.
0: Sure. Okay, mm-hmm. um, and and I guess going back to that era, uh, what sort of one of the things that are still um, around, uh, obviously the Yering Station um, facility and winemaking facility and, and now this, you know, beautiful, um, and restaurant, uh, mm. at the front is, is all very new. Um, but the, so the things that are remaining include, um, what was, it was, um, where they, where they do tastings, it was a, a barn of some sort, wasn't it? It was the original winery or part
1: of it. Okay. And it was converted into horse stables. Stables, um, right. Okay
0: and then reconverted back into the current cellar door. And, um, and obviously the, the other big sort of draw card is, is Chateau Yering, mm. which I, I would assume is where the, the family who owned the, the station Yeah, that was the original, lived. original homestead on yeah. the house, which is now, you know, luxury hotel. Five, six, twelve stars. Yeah, lots <laughs> of stars. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we see beautiful restaurant Eleanor's. Yeah. Um, and and so when when the Rathbones um, bought that they they approached you or they advertised a new sort of no um, they the approached position? me
1: um, I met one of the brothers uh, at a
0: tasting I was
1: doing. my wife had um, set up actually brought out a whole lot of French vignerons for a for a tasting called France Wine ninety five well. And uh, two weeks before uh, the tasting was um, to be on uh, to, to go, you know, they um, detonated the atomic bomb at Muro Atoll. <laughs> oh wow! So there was all this massive anti-French yeah, wave of, of sentiment, and all these poor winemakers came out to this furor. And um, yeah, well, we, uh, my wife uh, Nadege, put on that tasting to help to help um, French vineyards who didn't have representation in Australia, come out, show their wares and hopefully you know sell some wine and find a distributor.
0: Which they still do.
1: Yeah, and uh, it was successful in fact and um, yeah, Graham Rathbone came along to that tasting and I met him and we started talking about wine, Mm -hmm. you know, talked about Yearing Station you know, his brother had just bought it and I said, oh well that's great you know, sounds really exciting and you know, I met the family and they wanted to talk to me about it and um, yeah, offered me the job so it was a pretty quick Quick transition and um, yeah, started there and helped you know with the architect design the winery and. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so it was sort of thrown in into the deep end pretty quickly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, even more steep learning curves. Yeah. yeah. Um. And and when when they were re-establishing Yering Station, was there a sort of a, a particular guiding principle? Were there certain wines that they kind of wanted to make, or they just sort of wanted to make premium Yarra Valley wine?
1: Yeah, they were inspired by you know obviously the pioneers of the valley um yeah wines uh, john middleton's wines mount mary um so they were they were a little fixated with cabernet sure uh which i thought yeah it's fine we need to be growing and making cabernet it's a that part of the valley makes very good cabernet yeah um but also you know pinot noir and chardonnay uh, would be a big part of the future so it was sort of the mix of the three and then you know, we sort of had a bit of a play with Shiraz, I think, um, just to say that, you know, there wasn't a lot of people doing it in the valley. Yeah. And I had tasted, you know, some lovely wines, some old Seville estate Shirazes, um, some well, of the, the old Millers. Yarry
0: Yering Dry Red number two.
1: Dry Red Roo Roo number two. There was a number of wines that, you know, showed the potential with Shiraz in the valley. So sure. we put a bit of Shiraz in and and um, a bit of a Yonier and started playing around with that as well. So.
0: Uh, what about um, in terms of bubbles? Obviously, um, by this point, um, Domain Chandon was very well established as the sparkling producer. Um, did that kind of influence the decision to create a, a sparkling um, sort of sub-brand? That was that was that from the beginning, or yeah, did that it was a little later? Um, mm-hmm.
1: In 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 fact, it was my. Wife again, Nadège was actually working for Champagne Devaux, right? Okay. Uh, at the time, to uh, to assist them in trying to find the right partner, yes, to, for a partnership, a joint venture. Uh-huh. Um, and they've been making wine since 1993. Yeah. Um, their winemaker Claude Tippo would come out. Uh, the wines were made at uh, Chandon and um, just sourcing little bits of fruit. Just contract and, growing yeah, yeah, fruit and, um, you yeah, know, making these wines. And sort of by the time 96 came around, you know, they'd had sort of three years on lease, and it was ready to get going and start selling this wine. And, uh, um, you know, the stars aligned somewhat, I suppose, with me going to Yering and mm-hmm. we, we introduced the, you know, the the, the Gillet family from DeVoe to the Wrathbones and it seemed like a really lovely fit, yeah. Okay. Mm. Um, Um, so Yarra Bank was born um, (laughs) and you know we had a wine ready to go the 93 so that was sort of nice. So there wasn't, there hadn't even been any wine released yet? No, they hadn't done anything hadn't done any labelling but they were actively during 95 and 6 looking for the correct, you know the right joint venture partner to to establish a bit of a home base and get the wine
0: packaged up and sold and um, so initially um, what were the experiences in terms of you know, completely planting brand new vineyards. I would assume um, early vintages were you sort of just buying some fruit to kind of have some yeah, wine. Well, we had the original ourselves? the original Yering vineyard, which was twenty acres, so that
1: was planted back in uh, eighty seven eighty eight. Okay, and we uh, you know went out and uh, the Rathbones have bought more land, uh, planted some vineyards,
0: and also you know contract growers. Mm-hmm. And so there was a fairly heavy expansion just initially in terms of well yeah
1: we built a rather large winery uh, yeah. for the valley and a restaurant and you know fixed up the cellar door and everything else so yeah there was a lot of activity planting a lot of vineyard mm-hmm. um and uh yeah investing in making equipment barrels you know
0: tanks puffs, sure, sure. everything right from the ground up so very capital intensive uh, Yes. Uh, exercise establishing a, a brand new yeah. winery. Yeah, they don't pay for themselves they, overnight. <laughs> um, and so, um, at, at what point did you start to sort of say, okay, specific parcels are, are really um, presenting as much better and, you know, they might they might need uh, sort of more time or more new work, that kind of thing. When did you start making reserve wines or setting aside reserve wines, which is what Yering Station started to get a lot of attention for?
1: Yeah, right from the first vintage, so
0: 1997,
1: we yep. did, we did a, a three reserve wines. And each year it would be, you know, based on what we thought was the best parcel uh, so it would change by variety by you know um, each vintage as to what was sort of presented as the reserve wine so yeah it was right from the start we wanted to um, you know isolate the best parcels of the vineyard and and um, you know make some wines that would uh, you know establish our reputation as a fine
0: wine producer. And, and did you start sort of having single vineyard wines pretty early on as well? Uh, we didn't start that. We did a couple, um, very early on, uh,
1: 99, we did a couple of single vineyard wines. Okay. Uh, we had one vineyard that planted just on the other side of Yarra Glen that was a, a nice little spot named after uh, Doug's grandmother, Laura Barnes. So okay. we had, um, we did some Laura Barnes, you know, single vineyard Pinot and Chardonnay. Right. Um, so that was back. Yeah, we started that '98, and then '99. We had a mate from Burgundy come out and work '99. So we sort of gave him the, the Chardonnay to play with, and he could he could have a go at that. And mm-hmm. that was that sort of started the 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 work with the single vineyard stuff. But the okay. reserve was generally a blend of a couple of parcels, um, and that developed as we went through um, from sort of valley floor, lower Yarra Valley. Uh, we started to go further up into the hills, you know, mm-hmm. uh, up past Yarra Junction, Gladysdale, um, up there to find, um, cooler parts of the valley, uh, particularly for Chardonnay that were, you know, producing fruit and wine quality that was more sort of down our stylistic, uh, our stylistic preferences, let's say. Mm-hmm.
0: Sure. Um, Initially it was just Yarra Valley, or or just sort of continue to be Yarra Valley. Did they kind of start moving into other regions around Victoria? No, the the Uh, the sparkling
1: Yarra Bank, uh, we did source some Chardonnay from Mornington Peninsula. So that wine very early on was generally a blend of Mornington Chardonnay and Upper Yarra Pinot Noir from Mm -hmm. right up the top at 500 metres above sea level, um, Wombat Creek Vineyard. Yeah. And
0: so that, that was sort of the first introduction to, to Mornington?
1: Yeah, yeah. That was right back, right from the day, early days, yeah, 97,
0: 98, yeah. Okay. Um, and obviously, um, Yering Station started to get quite a lot of acclaim, for, particularly for the for the reserve wines. Um, one in particular was certainly one that when I got introduced to um, when I started working out in the Yarra Valley, which was the Shiraz Yonier wine, um, particularly the reserve. Uh, at that time there wasn't really um Shiraz Viognier was a, a pretty unknown blend um people did sort of didn't realize that it was it was wasn't uncommon to sort of put a, a small portion of Viognier in with Shiraz um did, did you have to sort of do a fair amount of work kind of educating people about Shiraz the Shiraz Viognier blend
1: yeah look we started playing around with a 99 2000 vintage obviously Yarra Yering had been doing it for a number of years in the dry red number two um, you know Tim Kirk, a clonic killer, sure. had been going for a, a you know a number of years prior to that, and we looked at those wines, and we you know when we looked at the sort of wine we we're making at Earing Station, you know, was much more cool climate Shiraz, of course, and we wanted to be able to define that to the consumer somewhat that it wasn't going to be like every other bottle of Australian Shiraz you've had before. You yeah, the Liberossa or McLaren. Yeah, it is it is different and so putting Viognier on the front label was a way of sort of you know
0: distinguishing
1: earmarking the wine that mm-hmm. there's something going on here that um is not going to be you know in the traditional slot.
0: Mm-hmm. And so eventually with the Yering Station um you uh parted ways and and you were I'm assuming approached Um, by the the owners of Ebby Lake and Heathcote to to join them and and that Mm. took you to the Mornington Peninsula and Heathcote uh, concurrently. Um, How did you find the shift there what sort of you're taking over uh, and possibly putting you know putting your stamp on the place?
1: Yeah look I when they approached me um, I'd been at Yering Station for 12 years Mm uh, the Rathbone wine group it had expanded somewhat with Parker Coonawarra Mount Lange, Xanadu yeah uh, they're building a big facility down in uh, port melbourne you know warehousing bottling facility sure and um, you know I was I was feeling it was getting pretty pretty big Yep. and uh, so it was a combination of the opportunity at yabby lake and and maybe just a combination of you know this is maybe getting a little bit a little bit too big for my liking mm-hmm. just in terms of the scope of the business and the number of people just, that were working in it just a whole general feel of it so it wasn't that it I was unhappy right. it was just a sort
0: of a rumbling of doubt about where yeah, this no. was going to go in the future and after 12 years you'd sort of been yeah. able to achieve a lot of a lot of great things
1: yeah and the, uh, when I looked already. at Yabby Lake and Heathcote um, estate uh, what what attracted me was that uh, there's two vineyards that are exceptionally well positioned you sure. know the site selection was, you know, fantastic, they'd really done their homework on planting the vineyards um, and making sure that different soil types were followed and clonal differences and they'd really, you know, really done their homework on establishing the vineyard, which was sort of rare back then, people, you know, just sort of bought a piece of land and said I want a vineyard and go and get me the vines, I want to plant this and that and the other without a great deal of thought about clones and soil types and aspect. Sure. Um, So I saw huge potential in the two sites and, um, you know, I looked at the wines, I thought, well, they're pretty good, but I reckon they can be a lot better. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so that was the sort of the the attraction, Um, just working back on a much smaller scale, very hands on. The winery is really beautifully equipped. The vineyards are really well set up. Uh, there was no contract winemaking. There was no contract growers. There was no. There was no, nothing cluttering the focus of what they wanted to do. So that was a great attraction to say, well, you can really sink your teeth into this and um, understand the vineyard exceptionally well. Um, you've got the equipment. You you know, there's, there's sort of no
0: excuses to be able to bring these wines to life. So. Yeah. At the same time, you know, it's it presents a really interesting opportunity to work into. In you know, a little bit different um, regions, particularly climatically. Moreintown obviously being quite a cool climate, and the Heathcote being a slightly warmer climate. Um, mm. You sort of can work with again different varieties and different styles. I'm sure that sort of um, was an attractive prospect as well. Yeah, it
1: was the focus too of of the two properties. So Heathcote was pretty much all Shiraz. There's a little bit of Grenache up there. Um, the brand was strong. Um, it, it was They were really focused on what they wanted to achieve with the vineyard and
0: the wines and then the sort of presentation to the market. The Heathcote Estate certainly was one of the first, with probably the exception of Jasper Hill. So yeah. they, they were one of the ones who actually put the Heathcote region on the map. Yeah, it
1: was definitely part of it. Um, I mean, they've only, you know, they've only really been selling wine from uh, Heathcote, you know, I think the, f- the first release was 2002. So the brands come, you know, quite a long way in a very short time yeah absolutely and same with yabby lake um it was a focus of you know pinot chardonnay the right clones the right aspect you know Mm -hmm. lovely packaging you know really really thoughtful right through the whole process so um yeah that that was a real attraction it was you know focused on achieving you know really the best wines we could possibly make off really good sites with you know really smart um, sort of business sense as well
0: so when you stepped into that position um, from memory uh, in terms of the Yabby Lake range it consisted of essentially sort of two ranges the the Yabby Lake range which had that beautiful um, very clean pure white label mm-hmm. and then the red claw range which I think consisted of uh, Pinot Gris yeah. uh, Chardonnay Pinot Noir um, and 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 I, I i've actually when i was down in mornington oh uh, yeah i did pop into the cell door and have a bit of a taste and noticed mm-hmm. that um certainly just within the red claw range there's been a little bit of expansion there yeah. um and i think that has there been incorporation of some of the heath get fruit into that yeah. range as yeah. well that's I said, right. it's sort of shiraz and mm-hmm. and rosé as well mm-hmm. um in terms of the the yabby lake range was there an expansion of that
1: we have done a few things, uh, we've um, done a Yabby Lake single vineyard Pinot Gris okay. uh, for the last couple of years, and a Syrah, um, which is there's a small amount of Syrah planted on the vineyard, so yeah. we've started um, bottling that and those two wines are generally limited in the trade but available at cellar door
0: right which obviously is a perfect opportunity for people to get down to the, the cellar door, yeah um, well, which we, does have a beautiful um aspect over the vineyard and uh yeah. so it's a lovely to sit out on the especially over summer yeah sit no, out on the deck. we've got a great range
1: of stuff at cellar door and we wanted to you know i wanted to make sure that there were things there that you couldn't get anywhere else so sure. that um you know when you arrive you can buy back vintages of the wine at the cellar door you can't get them anywhere anywhere else you can yeah, buy back to sort of 08 and 07s and 6s whatever you want to buy we've got limited amounts of them there uh and then smaller bottlings of
0: bits and pieces that we do exclusively for cellar door so sure um uh, 2008 was the first official uh vintage mm-hmm. at yabby lake and, and heathgate estate and i know that. um sort of the big the big thing to come out of that vintage um which certainly um got a lot of attention and was i guess your stamp um on yabby lake as as a new um chief winemaker was to release single vineyard or single sorry single block um chardonnay and pinot noir uh, and i know from that 2008 vintage volumes were exceptionally limited uh, oh, okay. as i as i probably continue to be mm-hmm. um how did, how did you sort of approach that, uh, you know, sort of a, a, more, a much more premium kind of positioned um, Pinot Noir Chardonnay wine? Um, how did you approach the, the owners and to sort of convince them that this, this was the, a really fantastic way to move forward? Um, well, I didn't really ask them, I just did it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, um, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, that, that, that great
1: suggestion. Um, uh, I mean, suggestion. we just dis- discussed it, but. Um, you know, it was like, this is the direction I want to go. Um, you know, when the vineyard's quite, you know, compartmentalised, there's uh, blocks and, and within the blocks there's varieties and within the varieties there's different clones. Right. So there's there's lots of options there. There's only 10 blocks, but the sort of permutations and combinations come out that there's quite a lot of different combinations mm-hmm. in, in terms of that. So, you know, to learn more about the vineyard, each of those little sections are made separately as complete wines within the winery, so you know, Pinot and Chardonnay, we might make you know forty different wines off the vineyard each yeah. year, yeah. Based on clone and maybe some wine making techniques, like some whole bunches in the Pinot, some with not, yeah. Um, they're two suddenly two separate wines, and then there's a clone a block, etc.
0: Right.
1: And uh, it was just about saying, well, look, if we get if we get a little parcel, something we've done that we think does look really exceptional and different and full of personality and character uh let's bottle it separately so, so you, a,
0: essentially what you did was rather than asking for permission you asked for forgiveness
1: yeah a little bit like that and i think they were, you've
0: been pretty v- uh, vindicated <laughs> yeah they,
1: they were excited about the project and sure. i said you know that's it's a way for us as winemakers to learn about what happens in the vineyard and what what we do throughout the year in the vineyard and then how we can bring that to life in the winery yeah and then what we do in the winery to either enhance the potential we've got you know or realize the potential let's say or sort of detract from it and unless you sort of bottle those batches separately and watch how they age you know you're only going to speculate about what is actually working of course and where, where can you improve so it was a bit of a learning process it was certainly i thought it would work in in the marketplace because you know i think there is i think people love the story I wanted to tell more about the Yabby Lake story. Yeah. It seemed to me when I got there, it was all a bit mysterious. Sure. Where is the vineyard? They don't have a cellar door. You know, you know, who are these
0: people making this wine? You
1: know, it was a bit hard to get hold of it.
0: That takes me all the way back to my first visit to Mornington. I think it would have been about 2005, maybe. And, and, um, and I knew, you know, I think... Because you know, I was going based on James Halliday's Wine Companion, mm. and I think Yabby Lake had... Four and a half or five stars already and i was like well how can i visit how can i taste these wines yeah. and
1: i felt the same a bit i thought the brand was a little bit aloof you know it was a bit hard for people to really buy into it uh and which maybe... is not
0: uncommon in mornington let's be honest yeah there are plenty of sort of and really I, small producers i wanted to
1: too. wanted to ground it and make it feel real and sure. explain the story of the vineyard and the site and so part of that was doing these wines that would would um you know enhance the single vineyard wine so previously they weren't labeled single vineyard it's like well let's take it to the next level let's do you know small single individual block wines yeah of course which will enhance the reputation of the single vineyard wine and the story will be much easier to tell about you know the vineyard the site what what's going on there how the wines are and sure and then obviously establishing the cellar door is sort of you know the the, the next uh, layer of you know of that so yeah it was sort of part of a part of a, you know, a strategy to to ground the brand and give it some real
0: authenticity. Give people something to connect with. Yeah. Um, how many different single block wines were released from that first vintage in 2008? Uh, three. So there was uh, one? Two, two Pinots and one Chardonnay. one Chardonnay, okay. Yeah. And have you made single block wines every vintage since then? Uh, the only
1: vintage we didn't okay. was a 2011. Okay. So '09 we did only two, and they were tiny quantities, only a hundred dozen each, right. um, because of uh, the yields were minute. In 2009, 2010 uh, we did three: uh, one Chardonnay, two Pinots. Mm-hmm. Nothing in '11, and then the the, the the three we've got this year, which is two two Pinots and one Chardonnay. <laughs> okay, but there've been different blocks all the way through. So yeah, that's an interesting story as well. Yeah. So you know, the first uh, block two is probably Pinot has been the one that. Um, has been consistently one Pinot that um, you know has always come up um, to the, the sort of the, the level we expect, um, and, and it's quite funny. The Chardonnays alternated between block one and block six, so every time we've done it, it's gone block one one year, and then block six the next year, mm. and it's happened again. Yeah, so, and
0: have you taken that approach to a certain extent up at Heathcote Estate as well?
1: Yeah, we are doing some block wines at, at Heathcote. Similar, um, similar philosophy behind it. Um, and uh, again, we didn't do any in eleven. Um, we've just released the two thousand and tens, which is a A block and an F block. Mm-hmm. They use letters up in Heathcote and numbers down on uh, the peninsula, so that probably helps us a little bit. It's like Sesame Street. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um. And that's a, a similar philosophy. Yeah. yeah. Um. And and which was the which was the block that did it this year? Did Jimmy, Jimmy Watson? Watson was yeah. the
1: block one. Pinot
0: Noir, 2012. Wow. Mm. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, what's What sort of, in, throughout your kind of winemaking uh, career, or I suppose certainly in terms of Young Station and, and, and more recently with Yabby Lake and, and Heathcote Estate, I'm sure you've had the opportunity to sort of travel and, and and see other parts of the world in terms of their wines. What kind of, um, what have you seen in, in, in that a period of time that's kind of made you really sort of stand up and take notice of certain areas. I mean, where, where do you think is sort of the future of wine in terms of maybe outside of Australia?
1: Yeah, I think we've seen obviously in the last ten years, um, you know, the top wines of France, you know, be traded even more than they have as commodities than they have in the past, sure. and uh, putting them out of the reach of uh, normal people. Yeah, of course. Uh, and I think that's that's a bit sad i used to love bordeaux because of the fact that it would keep people away from burgundy because you know, <laughs> people with money would it's easy to understand bordeaux you know we've got our five first growths and we make you know 25 30, cases of them yeah. and we charge a lot of money for it yeah. it's easy you can understand that we've got but a second at least growth, with, third growth but burgundy is at least there is, are wines
0: to buy Burgundy, yeah and you can buy them different. and,
1: and, and Priced or not, that's you know, that's a, your you know, somebody's opinion, but it, it, it was easy to understand for people with money and easy to show off and, and sure. whatever else, sure. Um, and it sort of kept people away from burgundy because burgundy was you know more complex, um, tiny little vignerons making you know maybe a hundred cases of this and 200 cases of that. Mm-hmm. Um, variations of vintage and producer and vineyard didn't indicate quality, although it would indicate price and all the different layers in burgundy that tend to baffle people. Sure. But, you know, the prices of Burgundy in the last five years, since probably the 2005 vintage, you know, have just been extraordinary. I mean, it's just really put wines out that, you know, we could afford to drink and enjoy um, into the stratosphere. You know, the trip has gone three, four times, five times in price from, you know, maybe a couple of hundred dollars for a really good Grand Cru from a good producer to over a $1,000. And it's like, well, that's just...
0: Uh, it's and, taking it
1: out of. I think the one taking it, taking it away from people who love it, and that's that's and understand it, and drink the wines, and put it into <coughs> a sort of a commodity that's traded and bought mm. and sold, and and, and 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 that's that's a real
0: shame. That, that that has been sort of one of the sad things about Burgundy is the fact that it has become more of a commodity, as you say. Um, elite, the the one thing that I will say about Burgundy is at least it is driven by um, supply and demand. Of course, unfortunately, they have. Been they've suffered some pretty uh, tiny um, um, vintages mm. recently, which has meant that they've had a lot less wine. But but you are right; it's just sort of it's pricing everyone out of the market. But yeah. but fortunately, I mean, do you do you feel that the quality of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay outside of Burgundy has improved significantly?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, in Australia, uh, in the last ten years, it's quite noticeable. Mm. Um, I think with Chardonnay, uh, there's always been very good Chardonnay in Australia made from cooler areas. Sure. It's definitely improved in the last 10 years, but I I think those wines, the wines we're loving today, were being made 10 and 15 years ago. It's just that people weren't talking about them or they didn't really understand. Or didn't
0: have the taste for them.
1: Or didn't, yeah, just didn't, didn't understand what good Cool Climate Chardonnay should taste like. Sure. And we're looking for much more sort of exuberance um but pinot you know with vine age and experience and know-how we've got to a point where we are making some seriously good uh wines sure. that um would stack up against the best from anywhere in the world
0: well certainly the mornington has always been my favorite place for pinot noir mm. um yeah it's sort of hard it is hard to compete against burgundy That sort of it's like saying you know it's like saying New York and the United States like you can't compare New York to anywhere else because it's completely its own thing Burgundy is like that but um, but Mornington still is my favourite place for Pinot Noir Um, I've certainly really liked what's been happening with Chardonnay in the last sort of five five years or so in Mornington Mm. Uh, in the past I think the expression was a little bit confused somehow possibly a little bit too much oak and mallow kind of manipulation going on I, I have liked Sort of bringing it back to sort of basics. That, that's been happening in Mornington. I think certainly the Yarra Valley mm. has been doing that better for a bit longer um, than the Mornington has in terms of Chardonnay. But um, yeah, it's it, it's sort of interesting to sort of see, and particularly you know, think certain things have really um, lifted the profile of Pinot Noir. Um, obviously you know, you can't discount winning the jimmy watson trophy no. <laughs> um but did you, did you find there was much of an effect from the film sideways for example
1: uh well i think pinot you know the, the jimmy watson win is really a, a win for pinot noir sure and, and pinot noir lovers you know it's put a center stage uh, for everybody who loves it um which is fantastic i mean i think we're we're People have been gradually falling in love with Pinot. Pinot's mm-hmm. not a wine that people start their wine appreciation with.
0: I need true winos when they get to Pinot, they kind of go, ah, oh, yeah, okay. It's where you, it's where you end up. <laughs> sure,
1: you know. So it does take time. You know, people get burnt with Pinot. People have been burnt buying expensive bottles of Burgundy that have been terrible and overpriced and awful. They've been burnt. <laughs> doing yeah, doing the same with Australian <laughs> Pinot that's sure. overpriced and not very good. Um, certainly there was a big image problem in the nineties with Pinot because there was a lot of people, you know, who were making Pinot in cool areas, beginning, charging too much for it, overcropping it, not making very good wines, Mm. um, and people were disappointed. So it had a big image problem and it's taken a while for it to recover from that. And... I think in the last you know in the last five years definitely we've had a couple of really strong vintages there's been a lot of really good wine around sure. you know the 2010s and now the 2012s and people
0: you know can't help but take it seriously mm-hmm. yeah it's good to see i mean for for if anything just to allow people to sort of drink uh australian wine or certainly australian red wine that is a little bit different expression from the kind of wines you were getting from from the 90s and early 2000s is really um very large wines well it is a general heavy. trend is that people are making wines that are more
1: consumer friendly let's say food and, friendly as yeah, well. food friendly and easier to understand so they're not they're not about these big heavy oaky wines you know there's lots of really smart wines being made of mclarenvale for instance which sure. used to be a little bit pigeonholed in the big uh, the big chunky Shiraz with loads of oak. Um, you know, there's some people doing some fantastic, you know, blends of Grenache and Shiraz and Mebed and really interesting, food-friendly, beautifully balanced wines. Mm. And I think that that is what consumers want. They don't want to be... They, they want to pick up wines that go, it's delicious. Sure. You know, and Pinot is a wine you can drink when you when it's young. Then you can age it if you like. But they should be delicious.
0: They should be... You should be through the bottle without even thinking about it. Yeah, one of the benefits, I guess, of pin and wire, that being a little bit lighter, you, you don't have any issues even ordering a second bottle. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, light on, light on, you know, tannin,
1: but big on flavour. Yeah, know, the best ones have you know really loads of flavour and layers of flavour, and that's mm. uh, that's what's captivating about it. It is, you know, they're delicious. They should be delicious.
0: Well, Tom, um, congratulations again for um, for that big win for for you and for Pino, um, and obviously for for the rest of the team down at Yabbie Lake, uh, and uh, I'm sure there'll be no issues. Uh selling out the rest of that that wine but um absolutely um i'm sure there'll be a little bit at, at cellar door available for people so i do highly recommend getting down to the mornington and, and making a stop at yabby lake and, and trying some of the wines that uh that tom has been doing it's such a fantastic job making uh since 2008 um but uh it's, thank you very much for joining us uh, any any exciting things happening at, at the cellar door um over summer that people would well We'll we are trying
1: to keep the wine uh the block one jimmy watson winner on at cellar door for as long as we can we're actually serving it by the glass so if you if you don't feel like uh, you can afford a whole bottle of it (laughs) you can you can sit down and try before you buy and buy uh, buy a glass of it and it's on tasting as well so Mm -hmm. um yeah it's uh it's fantastic it's driven a lot of traffic to our cellar door and people coming in and learning more about us so it's been huge win
0: fantastic um, and uh, you are on on Twitter at mm-hmm. at Yabby Lake. Yep, and that and that's actually you. That is me. It, it yes. says Tom Carson. Yes, yeah, so I do all the tweets, yeah. <laughs> which is which is really good to see. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, um, the Yabby Lake and Heathkit essay can be found online. Um, do get in contact if you'd like to to find out where you might be able to source those wines wherever you are. Um, but yeah, I do recommend um, just hit up Tom on 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 Twitter. <laughs> But uh, thank you very much for joining us today, Tom. Great. Thank you. Uh, thanks again for, for listening, guys. Uh, as always, you can follow me on Twitter at IntrepidWino uh, or you can follow the podcast at Vincast. Uh, Please do visit my website, www.intrepidwino.com, where you can find all the episodes. But uh, do please uh, subscribe and you can download the episodes on iTunes. Um, And I'd love some uh, ratings and and comments. Um, But until next time, bye.